Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 and Luke 2. We're looking at the birth of Jesus and his youth, and we're going to look at Luke 2 first because it seems to be chronologically before Matthew 2. And so in Luke chapter 2, we read that there's this guy named Caesar Augustus that's going to tax the whole world. Now, that's Octavian, and he's going to be given this name, Caesar Augustus, and he does. There, there is evidence historically of him taxing massive portions of the Roman Empire. If you're interested, go to the show notes, and you can read some of that. And so Joseph's going to his hometown, which is Bethlehem, south of Nazareth. Nazareth is up in Galilee, and so he's making the southern route down to Bethlehem, which is near to Jerusalem. And on the journey, Mary is great with child. Now, as a side note, they actually recently uncovered an archaeological site where she supposedly rested for a while on the way to Bethlehem. It's called Cathisma, and it's this octagonal church that was uncovered recently, and it's fascinating. And to realize that we may have uncovered one of the places where tradition says that she rested on the way, and you can go and actually visit Bethlehem, and you can go to this place called the Church of the Nativity that Constantine's mother, her name is Helena, She went to these holy sites, and she found the traditional site of the birth of Jesus, and then she built a shrine over it, and today you can go visit that place. And, you know, many pilgrims go there every year to go visit Bethlehem, and it's an interesting place. The the word means house of bread, Beit Lechem, and that house of bread is where the bread of life will be born. And everybody knows this story. They go to Bethlehem, the whole world's being taxed. We have the story of the shepherds hearing about the birth. And then after the birth, starting at about verse 21 of Luke 2, is the story of them taking Jesus to the temple to be circumcised and to offer a very humble offering. And when they get there, they meet a man named Simeon and a prophetess named Anna, and they make some interesting statements that we're going to look at. And then at the end of Luke 2, we read about the childhood of Jesus and the experience at the temple. That episode when he's 12 years old and he's, at, he's found in the temple talking to the doctors of the law. Yeah. Then in Matthew chapter 2, we read about the wise men that come from the east, or the magi as they're called, and they come to Herod asking where the king is. There's an inquiry into the texts, they go to the scrolls, and they come back with the Micah prophecy. In verse 6 of Matthew 2, we read, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. And that's a prophecy from Micah chapter 5. And so when Herod and his scribes see that verse, and when the wise men hear it, they go to Bethlehem to seek for the young child, and they bring gold frankincense, and myrrh. And that's kind of where we get the common idea that there were three of them. It doesn't really say how many there were, but they're coming to him in the house. And so the idea is that he's older. And it's interesting because Herod says, oh, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him also. And I, you know, I think the Magi believe this, and they go to, to find Jesus, but they're warned in a dream uh, not to return to Herod. And so they don't. And then Joseph is warned in a dream. And in the dream, he's told, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And so we read a quotation coming right out of Hosea 11. It says in verse 15, Matthew writes, And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now that passage in Hosea is referring to Israel being pulled out of Egypt in the Exodus, and the Lord is calling Israel his son. And what we see Matthew doing here is recontextualizing Old Testament passages and finding fulfillment in them in the life of Jesus. And so note this, as you go through the book of Matthew over and over again, Matthew will quote passages from the Old Testament and look at them in different ways. 
And what he's doing is he's seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of these types or shadows that are all through the Old Testament. So, so many things that we talked about last year in the Old Testament, Matthew will see them and give new light and new life to those verses. So when Jesus goes into Egypt, we read the story of the killing of the infants all throughout the land. And that could be read as a fulfillment of a type back in Exodus when the Pharaoh was killing the young children. And then finally, after the children have been killed, we read in verse 19 that Herod dies. And when Herod dies, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph to tell him to come back into his homeland. And so we read in verse 19, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But then we read this interesting hint that Matthew gives us in the 22nd and 23rd verses. And I think what one of the things we read here is that Joseph is trying to choose which place is safest to raise his son. And so we read in verse 22, when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, He was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, early Christians struggled with this because they tried to find prophets that talked about a passage or anywhere where it said, he shall be called a Nazarene. And it's not in there. We don't have anything in the Old Testament that reads like this. But an early Christian named Jerome, who in 382 translated the Bible into Latin, he, he was the main contributor to what's called the Latin Vulgate. He interpreted this text to be a fulfillment of Isaiah 11, verse 1. We have this idea of a branch coming up out of this cut down tree. That's the image in Isaiah 11. And that word for branch is related to that word for Nazarene. So Jesus is this branch in Matthew's view coming up out of a dead tree because he is a descendant of Jesse or a descendant of the house of David come from heaven to reclaim his rightful place as a son of David, a king in the land of Israel. That's how he's trying to portray Jesus at the very beginning. And so with that, let's go to Luke chapter 2, and let's see if we can find some additional meaning in the story that we all know. We all know the birth story, but our approach in this podcast is maybe to look at it from a different perspective, to give you some things that you can walk away and say, you know, I'm glad I listened to that podcast. I actually learned something, or I found a different way to consider it. Maybe we won't teach anything new that you haven't heard, but maybe just a a different way to look at it. And so as we go there, let's examine this with new eyes today as we go through this text. Let's go to Luke 2, and we'll start with a man named Simeon. Yeah. Let's see this symbolically. We all know the story, but let's see the symbolism of receiving Jesus. When Jesus is circumcised, they meet a man named Simeon, and Simeon says something to Mary that I think is a symbol of exactly what we need to do with this Christmas story. In verse 35 of Luke chapter 2, he says that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. In other words, the way we receive Jesus reveals what's in our hearts. So let's take a look at some of the ways people received Jesus in the Christmas story. The birth of Jesus, him coming into the world, is like him coming into my life. So let's take a look at a few of these Christmas story characters, and then we'll see what does this reveal is in their hearts. And I actually want to start back in Luke chapter 1, something we mentioned in our previous podcast, but I want to point it out now that when Mary shows up to Elizabeth's house, remember, Elizabeth is six months ahead of Mary, so John is still in her womb. But when Mary walks into Elizabeth's house, John leaps in her womb. And then Elizabeth says in verse 44, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 44, here is a beautiful example of how to receive the Savior. What does this tell you is in John's heart? For lo, as soon as the voice of the salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. I love what that says is in John's heart. 
that when Jesus comes into my life, I leap for joy. It reminds me of Joseph Smith coming out of the sacred grove and saying to his mother, all is well. Now, certainly all wasn't well, but because of what Joseph knew, he could leap for joy. Jesus had come into his life. The restoration was coming. The heavens were open, and Joseph leapt for joy. I think that's a beautiful way to receive the Savior. The second one in Luke chapter 2 are the shepherds. They came with haste. Quite often when we tell the story, we point out that they probably left their sheep. I don't know that they took their sheep to the manger. They came with haste. But verse 17, I think, is the key for me, that the shepherds, after they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. That reveals what's in our heart. When Jesus comes into my life and I run out and tell everyone that I know appropriately, that should tell you what's in my heart, that I go with haste. I'm willing to walk away from even my livelihood, the sheep that I'm taking care of. And after I've seen him, I testify and tell everyone that I know. That's a beautiful one. I want to do a third one. It's kind of hidden in the story. I want you to ask yourself, where were you and I when the angel was making the announcement to the shepherds? We were probably there watching with anticipation that the announcement was being made. And I point that out because of something that happens when the angel tells the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. Now listen carefully to verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. It's like they couldn't be contained. Their joy was so full that they couldn't be held back and they burst into song. Was that planned or was it just spontaneous? It's just telling that the hosts of heaven just burst into song suddenly. That tells you what was in their hearts, our hearts in a pre-mortal life, that we couldn't be contained and we began to burst into song. I really like that. Number four, let's talk about Simeon. After Jesus is born and they come back after eight days to have him circumcised, we're introduced to this man, Simeon to whom it had been revealed by the Holy Ghost, verse 26, that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 27, he came by the Spirit to the temple. I think that's very telling. He was prompted and moved that day that something was happening, and he went to the temple. And when he saw the child Jesus, he knew. He knew that this was the Messiah. And I love what he says in 29 and 30. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. I think what's being revealed here is, what else is there for me to see? You can take me, Lord. I am content. I have found him. I know him. Now, I, there's nothing in it that says Simeon was an old man. He could have been a very young man. I know in the art, he really is portrayed as old. We put an artist's portrayal of Simeon in the slides, but I really think that he probably was old. But like, like you said, Bryce, we really don't know. But I love the attitude here, is I have seen the greatest of all. I have come to earth, I waited, I saw it, and now I'm content to go. Once you have seen Jesus, there really isn't anything else on earth more important to see. Next, we come to know Anna, Anna the prophetess, who's been a widow for a long time serving in the temple. She also was there that day. And verse 48, this is how you respond to Jesus. She gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. I just want to pause on that one. How many times in the scriptures do we see people like the ones that come to the tree and they fall down? In the book of Revelation, we see them in the Lord's presence who just fall down. I love Alma the younger after he's wading through so much sorrow and he cries out, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me, which am in the gall of bitterness. And then he sees the father and then this beautiful line. 
his soul did long to be there. I think the very best and most telling reaction to Jesus is when we fall to our knees in gratitude and we thank the Father that the Son was sent, that we have a Redeemer. I just love that. And then the second one from Anna, she spake of him to all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. If you are grateful that the Messiah has come into your life, then speak of him to all that look for redemption all around you. Be a witness of him, just like those shepherds. Make it known abroad, everything that you've seen and felt and all that you know. When Jesus comes to America after his resurrection, he says, come and see and feel and know that you may bear record. Now let's do one more. We're going to jump to Matthew chapter 2, and I want to talk about the example of the wise men. It says in verse 2, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. May I suggest that his disciples are looking for him. They are looking for any sign of him. Every day, I should end the day by looking back and asking, where is he? Where was he? How did he manifest himself to me today? For we have seen his star. We are come to worship him. So they listed as two invitations, see and come worship. Some people see Jesus, but they don't come and worship. The wise men saw his star and they came a great distance. And sometimes we need to. Sometimes in our personal journey to get to Christ, we do have to go a great distance. But come and worship him. Now they go see Herod, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But after that whole episode, look at verse 10 and 11. And let me see if I can just apply this to those of us who go to his house today. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. That's another wonderful response. And when they were come into his house, you receive Jesus by going into his house, falling down, worshiping him, and opening your treasures. And the one treasure he wants is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's how you receive Jesus. You look for him. You find him. You come whatever distance you need to come. You go to his house with rejoicing in your heart. You fall down. You worship him. And you open up your treasures. You present to him the greatest gift, the one gift he can't take from you. Your money, he lent you. Your time, your breath, all of that he lent you. But the one thing that's yours is your heart your will, your desire to follow him. So those are some beautiful examples of how to receive Christ. Now, there are a couple negative examples in the story that we ought to talk about. Since we're in Matthew chapter 2, let's talk about Herod's reaction. First in the King James Version, this is Matthew 2, 3, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Now, this is something we're going to talk about this year in the New Testament. Quite often, when Jesus comes into our life, we are troubled. The woman with the issue of blood is going to fear and tremble when he turns around and says, who touched me? When they're on the boat in the middle of the storm and Jesus walks on the sea, they're going to be troubled. There is something about Jesus coming into our life that causes fear. In the JST version of Matthew chapter 2, we read a little bit more. In the JST of Matthew 3, 4 through 6, it adds another one, that Herod greatly feared. I think in Herod's position, he was really afraid that he'd lose power. He's threatened. He, well, he, he's married to a, a Hasmonean. He ends up killing her. Um, he kills even his own children because he's so worried about his power. You see, the Hasmoneans were a dynasty that reigned really for a hundred years. And, you know, when Pompey comes in in 63, Rome takes them from power. And in Herod's lifetime, he is installed as a, as a puppet king. And so he's in a really tight position because the Jews don't like him. 
he's not really one of them, essentially, but yet the Hasmoneans don't like him, so he's married to them. They have power, and Rome puts him in charge, but you don't want to be in charge here, and yet he has power. He, he's a great builder. I mean, he's, he builds uh, Caesarea Maritima. He builds the Herodian. He even builds a fortress on the top of Masada. He's one of the great builders of his day. He remodels the temple. He does a lot of things to try to show the Jews that, hey, let me be a friend of you. I mean, he remodels their, their temple. And you you can kind of see this when you look at people with power, can't you? Where you see they're doing things, they're moving things in position to ingratiate themselves to other people. But where does real power lie? And, And I think real power lies with Jesus, right? And yet, I think he may sense this. Bryce, I think he sees it as a threat to his position. Now think about that symbolically, because we're all Herods in one sense or another. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're fully going to receive Jesus, that means I have to let go of everything that is celestial and terrestrial. I cannot take any celestial or terrestrial attributes into the celestial kingdom where Jesus is leading me. I'm going to have to give them up if I'm going to follow him. And those parts of me know that. They know that to follow Jesus is to give them up, and they are threatened. So maybe we react like Herod because part of us is threatened. The other thing I want to point out is when the wise men don't tell him where Jesus was in verse 16 of chapter 2, he was exceedingly wroth. He's angry. Nephi will say, the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. That Jesus has come into the world and he knows that it's going to make people upset. Laman and Lemuel were constantly wroth and they were murmuring because they felt like Jesus was not doing what they wanted him to do. The other thing that we're going to see in Herod is a reaction of hatred. In verse 16 of chapter 2, he will slay the children out of his anger. Sometimes people get angry at Christ and they take that anger out on someone else. This is something that we should not be surprised to see in the world today. Fear troubled, anger, and a reaction of hatred and violence. Jesus will be referred to as a stone of stumbling for some people. And I just think that's worth mentioning in his very birth. The second negative reaction I want to point out is back in Luke chapter 2. One JST change in verse 7 was included, but one hasn't been included. The church has not included all of the Joseph Smith changes in the Bible. I think time and space were a limiting factor. And so in 2013, they added a few more in, but there were still some that they haven't fully added to the scriptures. This is one that I think is significant. The way the King James Version reads is that she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the JST change that is included makes the inn plural, so there was no room for them in the inns. Now, the way it reads makes it sound like, sorry, Joseph and Mary, I'd like to help you. I just am full. I don't have a place to put you. But there is a Joseph Smith change that is not included in the scriptures. Let me read it. She laid him in a manger because there was none to give room for them in the inns. Instead of the word no, you may want to cross the word no out and replace it with three words, none to give. Now, to me, that very much changes the meaning of the verse because it sounds like there was room for Joseph and Mary, but someone didn't want to give that room to them. I think one of the things we need to talk about this week in terms of how we respond to Jesus, is that everyone has room for him. But some simply say, no, I'd rather save that room for someone else or something else. Everyone could fit Jesus into their heart. But some of us choose not to give it to him. We don't give our time to him. We give our time to someone else or something else. We give our heart, we give our devotion King Benjamin will lament, How knoweth a man the master whom he has not served, who is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? I could put him in my head, 
but sometimes I choose not to. And in that sense, I'm like the innkeeper who could have made room for Jesus, but chose not to. Maybe they weren't important enough. Maybe he was holding out for someone more important than lowly Galileans. Do you remember when they make the offering at the Savior's circumcision, they offered the cheapest offering you could offer to turtle doves. They were probably poor. You know, Nazareth really was a working class area and very small. I mean, if you go there today, it's, you know, it's built up. But during the time of Jesus, for years, there were even scholars that thought maybe it didn't even exist. But we know that it did. And we know that it was a very small village. But that area really was working class. And Joseph, as a carpenter, a tecton, was an individual that probably, in my opinion, was a stonemason. There weren't a lot of trees there, but there were governmental building projects very near the area of Nazareth that we think that probably is where he went to go work. But what's amazing is the irony going on in this story. We have the king of the cosmos, that's what John's going to call him, the lord of the cosmos, born on this planet in the humblest of circumstances. I mean, you you don't Perhaps get... Perhaps even rejected because of those humble circumstances. Right. You don't even get more humble than this. This, this is it. So those are some interesting talking points you could have with your family, with your class. How do these reactions reveal what is in our hearts? How does leaping for joy or proclaiming his name all around us reveal what's in our heart? Going on a mission, what does going on a mission and being so happy and grateful to go on a mission reveal is in your heart? Even the negative ones, if we're afraid of him, if we trouble at him, if we get angry because of something Jesus has asked us to do, if we're offended by him, if we choose to not make room for him in our heart, all of these would lead to a wonderful discussion about what does my reaction to Jesus coming reveal is in my heart. Bryce, that's a really good way to look at this, the relevance in our lives and how we can apply it. I think there's another way we can read some of the birth stories, and that is as a type, an allegory or a type, something that's pointing to something else. We talked about briefly how there weren't a lot of trees in the land, and so a lot of the buildings and structures were built out of other kinds of material, stone or fired brick. And of course, there was wood. There was some wood, but it wasn't like massive forest. And so probably when Joseph and Mary put him in a manger, they probably put him in a stone feed box for animals. It was a stone box. And we put a picture of one of these in the slides. And it says that she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Um, Generally, when you travel long distances, the people that traveled would have long strips of clothing that they could use in case someone died on the journey. And that was a death band. And if someone died, you'd wrap them up in this band and you'd dig a grave and on the side of the road or along the way, you would bury them. And some scholars look at this and there are many that suppose that that's probably what they wrapped Jesus in, that they wrapped him in this death band, that they swaddled him in this cloth and they laid him in this stone box. And so if you think about that image, we have the son of God wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a stone box. And I would submit that that is a type for the death and burial of the Savior, even at the beginning of his life. He will end it and begin it, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying on stone. Yeah. And so now the Son of God has become embodied. Jesus is on the earth. And now the presence of Yahweh, which is Jesus, spiritually he is Yahweh, now he is the Son of God incarnate in flesh, And we read that the faithful sons and daughters of Israel have prayed for him so long, and finally, God is now with us. That's Isaiah 7, 14. God is now present, and he's clothed in glory. We read in many texts that are not in the Bible that the Lord will be clothed in wisdom and power, and we read in many wisdom texts that wisdom mother gives her son the priestly garments that are woven from every wisdom. And we read this also in this 
extra-biblical text called the Hymn of the Pearl. It's a beautiful hymn, and it really is the hero's journey in every movie that you've ever loved. And we'll reference this in the show notes. But part of the story of the Hymn of the Pearl, and some call it the Hymn of the Garment, is that this Heavenly Mother and Father character give their son, the Prince, this heavenly garment, and it awaits him to return back to heaven when they can clothe him in this garment of glory. All he has to do is fulfill the mission that he is sent to earth to do. And in that sense, this image of the mother clothing her son, it sits right in this ancient tradition trying to show Jesus enthroned in glory in this humble circumstance. I like the literal reading, but if we read it this way also, as he's set in this manger, which is a type for Yebus, the original city of Jerusalem, clothed in glory by his mother, the king comes to earth and the kings of the earth will come and kneel before him. That's the image that these authors are portraying to us. And they're inviting us to participate in this, for us to come unto Jesus. Now, There's a liturgical significance of Luke's testimony, kind of a typological approach to this. And a lot of this reading is coming through biblical scholar Margaret Barker. And she discusses how Gabriel meets Mary and tells her that her child is going to be called the son of the highest. And in her estimation, this is key in understanding the original birth story of Jesus. You see, in some places in the Hebrew Bible, the title son of God is applied to the king at the first Israelite temple. And by extension, this king at the first Israelite temple, when he is coronated, is a son of God. Now, we know that Yahweh is the literal son of God, but kings in the ancient Near East were often called son of God. In fact, there are a lot of scholars that look at the way the Gospels are constructed as kind of an affront to Rome. You see, when Octavian takes the throne and he becomes the man in charge of Rome, there are many that call him the Son of God, or even God manifest. And so it's almost like the Gospels are sticking their thumb at Rome saying, oh, you're talking about your kings are gods? No, our king is God. He is the Son of God. Okay, so back to what Margaret Barker discusses. She says, the king, acting as king and priest, is given the title, the Son of God, after his initiation in the holiest place in the temple, talking about these early Israelite kings. In proclaiming the king as a son of God, essentially God's presence was considered to be with the people, especially as the king and queen kept the terms of the covenant and the people were obedient to God. And so in this way, the child Jesus can be seen as a manifestation of God being present with his people, the great high priest coming into his temple. And so this theme can be elaborated by looking in detail at just one verse from the Christmas story. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 7. We read, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. She comments on this verse. She says, In the days of the original temple, firstborn is the title given to the person who has become the representative presence of the Lord on the earth. Then it was the priest king. Now in Luke's narrative, this is describing the only begotten of the Father, Jesus himself. The firstborn sets the scene because in the temple, firstborn is the title for the human person who has become the presence of the Lord on the earth. The original firstborn had been the Lord himself. Paul assumed knowledge of this when he said, quote, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's Romans 8. The newly appointed Davidic king was given this title. He cried out to the Lord, You are my father, and the Lord appointed him as firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's Psalm 89. This was the liturgical concept of the promise made to David through Nathan. We read this in 2 Samuel 7 when when Nathan says, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Paul shows this divine sonship was central to the gospel and all Christians being one in Christ meant that they shared in his status. They would be the assembly of the firstborn in the heavenly Jerusalem. That's Hebrews 12, 23. So there's a lot happening here. But what Barker is expounding upon is this idea. The kings were called sons of God. The saints that accepted Christ would share in the status of Yahweh, and they would be members of the 
heavenly church of the firstborn, or the assembly of the firstborn, as Paul writes in Hebrews 12. These garments of the king were important because they represented the glory of the Lord. The clothing of the newborn priest king in the days of the first temple was an important part of becoming the firstborn son. And we read some of this in the book of Enoch. We read in 2 Enoch that Enoch becomes a high priest, an angelic high priest, where he's, quote, clothed in the glory of the Lord. And so Jesus being clothed by his mother in this manger, by the way, Barker lays out this idea, and I find it fascinating. She says the Hebrew word manger is abus. It's almost the same as the ancient name for Jerusalem, yebus. It's a pun. And so in her estimation, the scene that Luke is setting describes almost the virgin who clothes the firstborn and sets him in ancient Jerusalem. And in that sense, this image of the mother clothing her son, it sits right in this ancient tradition trying to show who Jesus is from a liturgical approach, meaning the king of glory has now come, and we are, all of us collectively as we read this story, we are invited to come unto him. And really, we, we see this in so many instances in these two chapters, whether it's the shepherds that are invited to come unto him or the Magi that are coming from the east that follow the star and the texts that they have that have told them that the king is born, or even the wicked King Herod, who's so paranoid about holding on to his power, he is invited to come unto the king. I mean, everybody, right? Everybody is invited to come to the king. That's right. And so with that, let's talk about the youth of Jesus. So... Throughout this year, as we go through the New Testament, I will quote one of my absolute favorite authors, who was a contemporary of Brigham Young. He was a canon in the Church of England. His name is Frederick Farrar. He wrote a beautiful book called The Life of Christ. It's out of print and sometimes can be hard to find, but it's well worth the effort to find one. Elder McConkie quotes it freely in his Messiah series. Frederick Farrar says this about the 30 years between his birth and his ministry. He says, We cannot imitate him in the occupations of his ministry, nor can we even remotely reproduce in our own experiences the external circumstances of his life during those three crowning years. But the vast majority of us are placed by God's own appointment amid those quiet duties of a commonplace and uneventful routine which are most closely analogous to the first 30 years of his life. It was during these years that his life is for us the main example of how we ought to live. End quote. In other words, I love the years when he was the Messiah, when he has received a fullness of light and truth, and he is in all his glory the Messiah. But I wish we had a little bit more of those first 30 years before he really embraces his full ministry. Those are the years where he's most like us, the years of preparation. Now, we usually just dismiss it and say, we just don't know anything. But I think we know more than we think we know. And so I'd like to present all that we know about those youthful years and how they can become a pattern for us to follow in our developmental years. Let's start with the visit to the temple. I think this reveals a great deal about his youth. So in Luke chapter 2, we find that Joseph and Mary would go down yearly for the feasts. Every Jew was required to go at least three times to the temple during the year, and they were very faithful to that, it appears. And they went down to Jerusalem for the Passover. On their way back they discover that Jesus is not with them. So they return to Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine the panic in Mary's heart? She has lost the Son of God, and she is terrified. And they search for three days. Verse 46, it came to pass that after three days they found him, and he's in the temple. As a side note... (laughs) Sometimes people beat up Mary for losing him, but here's the deal. They probably traveled in big groups. You're in this massive group, and one of the reasons why they do this is because of robbers, right, Bryce? Yep. 
They got to protect each other, so they travel in large family gatherings and friends, yeah. and they just assumed, and this te- the text says that, that they just assumed he was with them. It, it brings to mind Home Alone, right? Yeah. You have this massive crowd, and then they've lost Kevin, and I'm like, it just reminds me of losing Kevin. But I guess my point is, I want to give Mary a pass. Yeah. They're in a big group. So when they find him in the temple, he's surrounded by doctors of the law, brilliant people. And they are asking him questions, and they're all astounded at his answers. At age 12, he was more brilliant than even the most brilliant doctors of the law. Now, Mary, I think, makes two mistakes here, and the Savior gently is going to correct those two mistakes, which tell us something about his youth in terms of his character. Mary, granted, she's frantic, she's been panicking, bless her heart, when she finally sees him, says, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I, that's mistake number one, have sought thee sorrowing. That's mistake number two. She says, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now watch a 12-year-old boy with deep respect for his mother tell us something about himself. Number one, he says, how is it that ye sought me? I think he's saying, mother, where did you look? Where did you expect me to be? He had already committed to be where he should be. I think he was saying, you should have looked in the most obvious place. You should have gone straight to the temple and assumed that that's where I would be, because I will always be about my father's business. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if every 12-year-old in this church sent that message to his or her parents? Mom, you may not always know where I am, but I will always be where I should be. I will always be about my father's business. That's an example for all of us to follow. Even at my age, I want my wife to know, if you don't know where I'm at, you can trust that I am about my father's business, that you don't need to go searching for me in places where I shouldn't be. I will be where I should be. I think that's lesson number one from his youth. Lesson number two is the correction where Mary said, thy father and I have sought thee. That was not correct. His stepfather, or I don't know how he referred to Joseph, may have been searching for him. But his father knew exactly where he was. And so he gently reminds Mary, my father was not searching for me. My father knew exactly where I was. Wished ye not that I were about my father's business. Point number two from his childhood is this boy knew his father. We're going to elaborate that in another point, but I think it's important to understand that I need to know who my father is. And I need to commit to always being about my father's business. Now, that doesn't mean I'm always doing church things. I have a job. I have a yard. I have duties that I've got to take care of. But in my heart, in my mind, I want to always be about the good things, the righteous things that my father wants me to do. Number three on my list of lessons from the youth of Jesus is in verse 51. Now, notice he just proved that he's smarter than the greatest doctors of the law. They were astounded at his understanding and answers. And yet in verse 51, he went down to Nazareth and was subject unto them. The one person who truly knew more than his parents still was subject unto them. I think that's telling that he stayed in the lanes. He stayed in his lane. And sometimes we make that mistake, and he certainly could have justifiably stepped out of that lane. 
but he didn't. He was subject unto them. Sometimes we see people in the Sunday school class who are smarter than the teacher and feel it's their duty to let everyone know that they're smarter than the teacher. In a church where we exercise hierarchical keys, there's always someone that holds keys higher than I am. Now, they may be more or less prepared. They may know more or less according to my own perspective than I do. But there's a great lesson here on how to follow Jesus, who was smarter than his parents and yet was subject unto them. I'm going to do the next one, which I think is a little chronologically out of order, but since it's right here in Luke, let's go to Luke verse 52. Number four on my list is that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And you'll notice if you've watched what the primary is doing, you'll see that they've used this same idea, that Jesus developed in a balanced way. Notice those four categories. He increased in wisdom. He increased intellectually. He learned and grew. He studied. He increased in wisdom. Number two, he increased in stature. He took care of his body. I'm sure he brushed his teeth. I'm sure he ate the right foods and got the right amount of sleep. I am positive he exercised. He understood the connection between a healthy body and a healthy spirit, and he took care of that physical body. I think that includes his mental and emotional health, that he took time for those things. Number three, he increased in favor with God. He increased in spirituality. Now, that's kind of a given. We assume that. But we all need to increase in our stature with God. But then also the fourth one here is he increased in favor with man. Jesus was not raised in a cave, isolated from human beings. His work was people. Therefore, he was familiar with people. He was a social being. He was balanced intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. He went to the different activities. He was not isolated socially from people. Sometimes we see missionaries preparing to go on a mission and they overemphasize one of these four categories. They overemphasize perhaps their spiritual preparation, but they don't emphasize their social preparation. A missionary who is able to deliver a wonderful message is of no value if he can't get into the door, if he can't get into the hearts of people with his social abilities, then he won't have an opportunity to deliver his message. But imagine a missionary who's so social and he easily gets himself into the hearts of people, but he doesn't have the spiritual preparation to deliver a heartfelt spiritual message. If you don't have anything to share. You've got to have that balance. And I think Jesus illustrates that with his youth. I have a good quote here, Bryce, by McConkie, where he says, he learned to speak, to read, and to write. He memorized passages of scripture and he pondered their meetings. He was taught in his home by Mary and then by Joseph. Jewish tradition and the provisions of the Torah were discussed daily in his presence. He learned the Shema, he reverenced the mezuzah, and participated in prayers morning, noon, and night. Beginning at five or six, he went to school and certainly continued to do so until he became a son of the law at age of 12. Lorenzo Snow said that Jesus was a god before he came into the world, and yet his knowledge was taken from him. He did not know of his former greatness, and neither do we know what greatness we had attained before we came here. But as President Snow also taught during the Savior's life, he said, quote, It was revealed unto him who he was and for what purpose he came into the world. The glory and power he possessed before he came into the world was made known unto him. And so I really think it's important for us to know that Jesus did grow from grace to grace. I really like those four things, Bryce. I noticed when I was working with young men in the church that we had the four aspects of Luke 2.52 as the goals that young men were to set. They were to set spiritual goals and social goals physical things that they could attain, as well as intellectual goals. And increasing in those things is part of our journey here in life. It's a a beautiful verse. Yeah. 
Let me do number five. Number five, you're going to have to find. If you go to Matthew chapter two, the very end of the chapter has a Joseph Smith edition that you're going to need to find in the appendix. It's too big for the footnote, but it is the last portion of Matthew chapter two. It is JST of Matthew 3, 24 through 26. The JST puts it in chapter 3, but it really goes with chapter 2 of the King James Version. So I'm going to read from that portion. It says, And it came to pass that Jesus grew up with his brethren and waxed strong and waited upon the Lord for the time of his ministry to come. And he served under his father, and he spake not as other men. And then this phrase, Neither could he be taught... For he needed not that any man should teach him. Now, let me see if I can throw out some hints as to why that was true. Things that he says later on that might indicate why he didn't need men to teach him. So turn with me to John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Now we're going to make a list of what he says to explain why he didn't need man to teach him. John 5, 19 and 20 Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. Jesus saw the Father do The Father showed Jesus what He, meaning the Father, does. He learned from the Father. Now jump to John chapter 7, verse 29. He's going to throw another one in. John 7, 29 says, But I know Him, for I am from Him, and He hath sent me. It's that phrase, I know Him. Do you see what Jesus was doing during His youth? Turn to chapter 8. There's a couple in chapter 8. The first one is in verse 26. He says, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. Do you see what he was doing during his youth? He was being taught by the Father. I speak those things which I have heard of him. And then in verse 28, he says, I do nothing of myself, but as the Father hath taught me, I speak these things. I love the one in verse 38. He says, I speak that which I have seen with my Father. Now, I'm hoping that translation is correct because, man, I love it. To have seen the Father is one thing, but to have seen things with the Father means I'm walking with the Father and the Father is pointing things out to me. Just a couple more. Chapter 10, verse 15. All of these are in John. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. How about one more? Chapter 12, verse 49. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. Now, do you see why Jesus didn't need to be taught by men? It's because he was being taught by God. Now, let me talk about that application. I think the Lord expects us to take advantage of every avenue of truth we can. Taught by parents, taught by teachers, school systems, gather all the truth that I can. But in addition to that, we need to be taught directly from the Father. What has the Father taught you? Every one of us has a personal line of communication, and we are entitled to be instructed from on high. Jesus took full advantage of that line of communication. I love when he's at Caesarea Philippi and he asks the disciples, whom do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And then he points out to Peter that you got that from the Father. And I think the illustration here is, I think we need to know what men say. That's important. But we most importantly need to know what the Father would have us know. Have you been taught by the Father? Have you seen the Father do things in your life that have instructed you?
Let me just do a couple more. Some interesting phrases outside of this week's scripture block. Turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He will kick off his ministry in Nazareth where he grew up. He goes back to the synagogue. Now, let me read it. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. What does the phrase, as his custom was, suggest to you? This is a young man that was fully involved in his religious development. He went to the synagogue. He participated. He learned. He listened. He asked questions. He read the manuals he was supposed to read. He fully engaged, as his custom was. The next one that's outside of our scripture block is in Acts chapter 1. Now, Luke is going to write his gospel, and he will continue that narrative into the book of Acts. Acts is really just the second half of Luke. But as you look at the very first verse of Acts, it says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And I would submit to you the order there is very significant. Jesus spent the 30 years doing so that he could spend the next three years teaching. Do you see that significance? If we're going to follow the Savior in his youth, long before I am in a position to teach and to show and to educate and to discipline I need to do first, and then I need to teach. The last one on my list is something that Mike and I spend a lot of time on, and that is the idea of grace for grace. If you'll go back to section 93, it describes the first 30 years very well that he did not have a fullness. Verses 12 and through 14 of section 93 says that he came into the world and he did not have a fullness at first. Jesus came through the veil. He did not remember that he was Jehovah of the Old Testament. He went through the veil and forgot everything. And he had to advance and progress grace for grace, just like you and I have to. So 12, he doesn't have a fullness. 13, he doesn't have a fullness. 14, he doesn't have a fullness. Then in verse 15, it mentions his baptism, and that was around age 30. And then in verse 16, it says he has a fullness. Jesus, I would suggest, had a fullness of light and truth and knowledge during his ministry. But prior to that, he was growing from grace to grace, just like you and I are supposed to. So there are some wonderful little things you could have a discussion about with your family or your class or your friends, or even ponder yourselves as you study these two chapters. Make a list of what you learn about the Savior's youth, the time period where he is most like us the time period where we should follow that pattern and be taught by the Father, be subject to the powers that are over us, stay in our lane, know who your Father is, do before you teach, develop in a balanced way. All those lessons from the Savior's youth are worth a great deal of our time this week to ponder and put into practice. Excellent stuff. Some final thoughts as we go through the birth story that I think are really important to discuss. Jesus literally was born, and I think going through the text is just worth the time. There's a spirit attendant in the literal reading. And I think there's another way we can read some of the birth stories, and that is as a type. We can see this story on so many different levels, and I think we can see this as an allegory for the Christian church. The Christian church is coming from humble beginnings. And believers in Christ, we come to earth subject to the realms of our lives or the powers that be. And eventually, the kings of the earth will bow down to them. I mean, we see this a little bit in the 26th chapter of Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah 26, verse 18, in the Greek translation, I'm going to read my translation here, and this is in the show notes. We read, In our belly we have seized and felt the pains of childbirth, and also we have brought forth the spirit of your salvation, and this we have created on the earth 
but those dwelling upon the earth will fall down prostrate. What we read in Isaiah 26 is this message from the early saints saying that they have toiled, felt the pains of childbirth, and in so doing have brought forth the spirit of our salvation, and the kings of the earth will fall down prostrate. In my mind, I see the kings of the earth falling down before the Savior as the king of the world. This is a great allegory because that's what we see in the infancy of Jesus. When he's a child in this home, as it were, as Matthew describes it, the kings of the earth fall down. We also read this in a careful reading of Psalm 72, that the kings of the earth fall prostrate before the king's son. There's a lot of ways we can read this. We can also read it as an allegory of the future sacrifice of the Son of God, as we've discussed, Jesus wrapped in bands that can be seen as death bands and laid in a stone box. If you're interested in some of the Greek, we put all that in the show notes for you to show you that the clothing that Jesus is wrapped in is really related linguistically in Greek to the word for death bands. And so then in the application of the text, As a Darash reading, Bryce has eloquently gone through the text and seen many ways that we can apply this as our journey through life, how we receive Jesus, how we see him. For me, as I read this, I I read this as a text that encourages me to be subject to the powers that be. Life isn't always fair, and I really feel like fairness is so important, and yet I'm sure Mary and Joseph did too, but they didn't go around claiming that they were robbed. They didn't walk around... Uh, with a sour look on their face saying, life isn't fair. They were subject to the powers that be. And I think we need to do the best with the circumstances that we have. And then finally, the sowed reading, the mystical reading, or as an ascent to God. There's a lot that we could discuss, and we put this in the show notes because it's a little much for this podcast, but there's a subtext going on here. This is a text that is written in code, to denigrate the powers that be. In other words, the powers in Jerusalem that are running the Holy of Holies in the time of Jesus, it can be read through Matthew and Luke's narrative that they're doing it wrong and the followers of Jesus are doing it right. We see this also in the first Nephi 8 through 11 narrative, and we did a podcast earlier on that. If you're interested, you can go back and listen to that one. That sometimes is happening in the text where there's the story, but then there's the story beneath the story, and it's saying things that cannot be said overtly. They have to be said obliquely. Why? Because we can't say that openly. We got to say it in code, and there's this code switching going on, and you'll have to go to the show notes to pull on that thread. I just invite that for those of you that are interested, but to conclude, I want to talk about this mystical ascent. In the image I want to invoke, we put this in the slides for you so you can kind of see it. If you don't have the slide in front of you, I'm just going to try to paint you a picture. You have the nativity with the star. You have Joseph and Mary by Jesus and angels above them. To the right, we have the shepherds and the ox. To the left, we have the three kings, the magi coming from the east. So we're kind of combining both stories. We're combining Matthew's and Luke's. And we've combined all of these elements so that you can kind of envision this idea that what we see are the kings of the earth coming to the Savior, who's the true king. We have the father and the mother image. We have Joseph and Mary. And with this, we have the images of the ox and the donkey, which could represent our ability to get past the princes and the priests of our time and see truth. Now, if you want to pull on that thread, you got to go to Isaiah 1 and go to the show notes and just kind of look at that as the donkey and the ox as symbols for the priests in the days of Jesus. In Jesus's day, these rulers were those who held the power in Jerusalem. And so the birth story has Jesus born in a different temple. Like he's not born in the temple, but he's born in a different temple, perhaps a cave. Some of the early Christians thought that he was born in a cave, representing this idea that Jesus is coming out of the earth to reclaim his kingdom. The pronouncement of his birth from the heavenly angels to the lowly shepherds could represent men and women of the earth us, you and me, the common folk, being taught from on high and coming into the divine presence as they heed the voices of heaven. 
this whole scene could be seen to me as our personal ascent back to God the Father and our Heavenly Mother, back into the presence of Christ, where we offer our very lives as a consecrated gift unto Him. We are, in one sense, the shepherds. The shepherds don't bring a gift, but they bring themselves. And that is us. We bring our lives. We consecrate them to him. And this gift of our life is greater than gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because really, to me, it's the very thing that he requires of us to be one with him in the church of the firstborn. I want to just leave that with you and my testimony that this message is perpetually relevant. It's not just relevant in December, but it is essential in our whole life. We need to come unto him. And I really like how Bryce laid out the different ways people have responded. I think it's an invitation for us to consider our ways and how we respond. And so with that, we thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we cover John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.